like to introduce Dr. Daniela Jones. She is a research assistant professor in the biological and agricultural engineering department here at NC State, but she also has a joint faculty appointment with the Idaho National Laboratory. She is also the developer and director of the new agricultural data science graduate certificate at NC State, a graduate faculty in the operations research program, a faculty fellow of the Center of Geospatial Analytics, and a faculty of affiliate of the Ag Biofuse program, which is the most important in the least, obviously. <laughs> she develops a wide range of data-intensive algorithms and applies diverse modeling and optimization tools to solve large-scale problems that arise in the areas of transportation, logistics, and renewable energy systems. These skills are highly instrumental to tackle the national grand challenge to decarbonize our energy needs while securing a sustainable and resilient supply chain infrastructure. She her PhD in biological and agricultural engineering from Texas A&M University, where she was an Alfred P. Sloan Scholar and received a certificate in business management. She then received her master's and uh, bachelor's of science degrees in industrial engineering with an emphasis in operations research and a minor in mathematics from Mississippi State University. And before that, she was... Um, and before now, sorry, she was a postdoc um, at Duke University where she performed a quantitative and qualitative research on student interventions and supported programming of educational career development workshops and community development events for underrepresented undergraduate and graduate students in the biosciences. Wow, that is quite uh, a list of accomplishments. <laughs> um, so if you would all help me welcome Dr. Jones as she tells us today about her work in precision agriculture to decarbonize our national energy needs. Thank you, Jennifer, for such a kind introduction and thanks to all in advance for your attention. As I discussed the strategies to mobilize carbon resources from agriculture to conversion uh, for bioenergy, while also applying precision agriculture to mitigate climate change. I do welcome any questions throughout the presentation, so please stop me as needed. I understand that the audience today is very diverse in discipline and research applications, so I wanted to start my presentation by taking a bird's eye view of energy in the US to explain where my research lies. This graph shows the total energy consumption in the US each year. Since the year 2000, the US consumes just under 100 quads of energy each year. Now, I want us to focus on where is most of our energy being used. This graph is similar to the previous one, except that the energy consumption is divided into the sector, the sectors that use this energy. As you can see, the industrial and transportation sectors together use 55 quads, or about 60% of the total national energy consumption last year. My research lies in this place in the energy sources for transportation and industrial uh, sectors, but truly we have the potential to displace the energy sources for all sectors. This Yankee diagram has energy sources on the left and consumption sectors on the right. My goal is to translate my research so that biomass has a bigger size of the pie in terms of energy sources and displaces non-renewables such as petroleum, coal, and non-biogenic natural gas. My career has focused on the renewable source that lets us have energy in the form of liquid, uh, which is biomass or agricultural products. 
Before I continue, I do want to acknowledge that given the current administration efforts to electrify cars, there's a possibility that we will not need liquid fuels for terrestrial transportation, but we could also have a future of hybrid cars and most likely we'll still need aviation fuel, fuel in the liquid form, uh, sustainable aviation fuel. So the major barriers to bioenergy production are feedstock cost, reliable supply and uncertainty. This uncertainty is mainly due to weather, extreme weather events, soil texture, and their impacts on yield. One way to overcome feedstock cost is to densify agricultural products in order to reduce shipping costs. To ensure a reliable supply, um, uh, a collection facility could diversify their providers or feedstock types and expectations or specs and or expand their supply radius. In the case of uncertainty due to the weather events, precision agriculture devices such as advanced infield, aerial, or satellite sensors could improve agricultural management practices. Agricultural lands are mainly far from the big cities where population is concentrated. In this graph, red on the left represents population and blue on the right and blue represents biomass per state. In the left, you can see that uh, we have California with very high population, but very little biomass quantities available in that state. On the right, Iowa represents the flip side of California's story. Uh, this geographical barrier, in addition to the temporal availability of biomass products versus the year-long energy needs, add to the challenges of resource mobilization for the conversion of agricultural products to bioenergy, bioproducts, or biofuels. With that said, my research focuses on analyzing the economics of transporting biomaterial, particularly agricultural residues and energy crops for biofuels, bioproducts, and biopower. And with this research, my team and I work on tackling national challenges like the mitigation of carbon emissions, analyzing best practices for land use, and strategizing food and energy production for a growing population. So a research question that my lab tackles is, how much can biomass truly displace? As one of my colleagues say, you cannot assess what you cannot measure. So a lot of my research revolves around quantifying accessible biomass for conversion throughout the whole US. The BT-16 report is a, uh, a report by the Department of Energy. This report provides us with great estimations for how much biomass we could potentially have in the U.S. to advance our bioeconomy. It also gives us a good understanding of where could these resources be throughout the contiguous U.S. and different supply curves based on willingness to pay for each, of, for each ton of biomass. So let us look at into some of those estimations. In this graph, I'm just displacing the bigger feedstock players according to the BD-16, which are corn stover, which is a residue from a major cash crop, switchgrass and miscanthus, which are perennial energy crops, poplar and willow as part of the short rotation woody crops and forest uh, residues and trees. Today, I'll mainly talk about how much of the available biomass is truly economically accessible. How much could we expect to pay for this feedstock uh, for liquid energy 
production and how we could mobilize these resources for conversion. The high cost of mobilizing biomass are associated with biomass inherent characteristics, bulky, non-flowable, and aerobically unstable. A strategy that Idaho National Lab and my team has long studied is the possibility of having a collection depot close to field that pre-processed feedstock to a format that is economically suitable and sustainable for delivery to conversion facilities or biorefineries. Hence, the value-added chain would include pre-processing depots. Biogenic resources would be delivered from fields to depots in the form of bales or uh, chopped biomass or logs. Depots will be of various uh, nameplate capacities depending on their location and the resources nearby. And at the depots, biomass will be processed, for example, into pellets to improve its storability, mobility, and density. This processing allows for high capacity transport alternatives, such as rail and barge to deliver biomass from depots to a biorefinery. Uh, it is important to note that rail and barge are cheaper transportation modes uh, when delivering high volumes for long distances. Note that one truck holds about 25 tons, while one unit train can hold 500 times that. And per ton, uh, usually uh, delivering in a train is a lot cheaper than delivering in a, in a truck when delivering for high, high distances. So my colleagues and I recently analyzed and published our findings and on how much of corn stover and switch risk could we mobilize according to specific quality and cost expectations. Our optimization model had an objective to maximize resource mobilization while meeting quality specs and an average cost of biomass delivered to the reactor throat. We analyzed different scenarios with different supply curves for different years and cost targets. This was a joint research project between researchers at Oak Ridge National Lab, Idaho National Lab, my PhD student, Tasmin Hussein, and I. We found that we could, in fact, deliver up to 168 million dry tons to biorefinery at an average of $79 per dry ton. These results uh, are impactful because now they're uh, measurements or, or quantities that uh, DOE, the Department of Energy, is utilizing for looking ahead in the future for the, uh, of the nature of the bioeconomy. And this 168 million dry tons are about 176 million barrels or one quad of energy. To go back to the first slide that, that I show of, you know, how much can we displace using biomass of our energy consumption. We recently did a similar study to answer the same question, question for the mobilization of forest trees, forest residues, and short rotation woody crops. We're in the process of publishing this soon. Uh, the assumption here is that the blended biomass ratios delivered to biorefineries contain at least 50% of carbon contents, ash contents of either 1%, 1.75, or 3% or less, and a moisture around 10%. We estimate that woody resources could displace another one quad of our total energy consumption. Our next goal is to expand this analysis to identify costs associated with merging two renewable energy systems where nuclear power, power could provide the heat and hydrogen to convert biomass for biofuels. We have a recent publication on the concept of an integrated system that combines biomass with nuclear energy 
And our next step is to perform the techno-economic analysis of such system. All the papers that I talk about as well, they're on the bottom if you can see the, the citation. Um, Another way to look at the costs associated with collecting and delivering biomass is to set up a simulation of the biomass supply chain. This way, we, one could change different parameters in the model to estimate the impacts of changes to their overall cost. This simulation in particular takes into account different extreme scenarios in terms of uh, different weather conditions and uh, different uh, yield availabilities throughout uh, different fields. My team is also getting hands-on research to better understand the feasibility of making pellets out of miscanthus for bioenergy production. Miscanthus in particular is a perennial and a new crop that can be grown on marginal lands. So it's switch grass. This uh, marginal lands are usually not used for food crops. Hence, we're not competing with food or feed. This is a project that I have uh, supported by the NCDA and Juliana Pien and Tasmin Hussein, my PhD students, are also part of this project. Um, uh, Jason Oliva is an undergraduate uh, researcher uh, from the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department, and he's helping me uh, better understand the resources that we have available in the, in the public data sets by USDA. And and our hope is that is to be able to um, better inform the the um, the models that we have with those data sets that he's creating. Now I want to get back to this one slide, which summarizes what my lab works on. So far, most of the projects that I've been talking about revolve around tackling the challenges to reduce feedstock cost and ensure a reliable supply or identify locations that ensure a reliable supply to the biorefineries. But as you guys know, extreme weather conditions are ever increasing, making yield estimates harder and harder to predict. Because of, because, uh, of where we are, North Carolina, the biggest producers of sweet potatoes in the US, a lot of my efforts in precision agriculture focus on this crop as well, sweet potatoes. In one of, uh, I am one of the leads of a big project funded by the PSI, the Plant Science Initiative at NC State. Uh, we call this project Sweet Apps. Um, uh, Sweet Apps, sweetpotatoanalytics.com. We uh, that's our website if you want to learn a little more. Uh, if you would like to find out more about this project, uh, these are also the leads. Like uh, this is an NC State-run project. Uh, with a lot more people that we, you can see in this graph, but I still need to update this graph. We, we continue to grow and it's harder, it's getting harder and harder to update this network of uh, excellent researchers. In this project, we really are aiming to understand the different factors that affect sweet potato shape and size. The goal is to use machine learning algorithms to help us understand that variability in sweet potato shape and size. My major role in this project is to lead the training and workforce development of professionals that are well-versed in data science and agriculture. But also I'm leading the precision agriculture team efforts to use in-field technology to better understand yields. These several efforts truly not only advance the production from rural economies, but 
also advance the knowledge to get a better grasp on handling uncertainty in agriculture with data analytics. Uh, this, uh, in preparation for this presentation, I have asked a couple of my students or all of my students to prepare a slide to summarize their, uh, their research efforts so far. This is Shelly Hunt, and she's working on a master's in the Department of Bio and Engineering. She started in fall 2020, and she has been very instrumental for the, uh, for the SweetApps project. Dana McDowell is a new BAE PhD student as well. And what she's currently working on is trying to help us understand um, the weather stations that, that, are, that have the public data sets and how can we uh, better determine if, if we're working on a field, how can we better determine if a nearby uh, weather station is representative of that field or not? Uh, we know that uh, precipitation, for example, the parameter of precipitation can be really, really uh, diverse when, when trying to estimate it for a field. So uh, as we continue to progress in the super data analytics uh, in the Sweet Apps project, we want to better understand uh, when we will need to uh, set up a weather station for a particular field or when can we take advantage of the public uh, weather stations out there to get a representation of uh, that field. Uh, Fernando De Marchi, he is an undergraduate student that came uh, as a that came to NC State as a visiting scholar from Brazil, and he is helping me uh, better understand the national land cover data and how um, how over the years land use changes and uh you know we know that you know there's a ideal crop rotation for every year to deliver the best sweet potatoes uh and and depending and and, and tobacco as well um so he we want to better understand the national what the national land cover data set says in terms of uh which is a satellite sat which are satellite images that better represent uh what's in the field um, so we're uh, working with big data sets in the in the uh, state of North Carolina for uh, um, using this uh, satellite images. Juliana Bean is another PhD student working with me. Uh, she's doing her PhD in operations research, and she recently uh, um, has started uh, studying one of. Um, um, uh, a project that we have with Dr. Sierra Young, where we're trying to improve uh, the algorithms that will better detect where uh, uh, certain, um, uh, where, where can we, how can we create a fastest route for a drone sprayer to go throughout the field uh, and spray so that we don't use as much uh, pesticides or, or um, um, herbicides into the field and just spot treat the, the, the fields. I have one more slide about my team. Well, one, this one and then one more. Um, there's nothing that any professor can do at a lab without their team. And I'm forever appreciative of the students that I work with me, that work with me. 
Uh, I have an excellent set of students that have been working with me pursuing bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees in science and engineering. And uh, uh, all the work is thanks to them. The last slides that I do have, uh, it's um, a little plug about the Agriculture Data Science Certificate. It's a newly uh, developed uh, certificate for graduate students in, in North Carolina and professionals out there that want to learn more either on data analytics or uh, agricultural system. Uh, the certificate is composed of four, uh, four classes or 12 credit hours. Um, it, there's two classes that are foundational, the statistic, uh, a statistics class that gives you the statistical skills to better use data science. And then uh, my class, the BAE 542, that truly give you a, um, it's, it's uh, uh, advanced analytics and it, they give you a, a first view of machine learning algorithms of better data visualization. And, uh, and all these uh, are, and these two classes are being used uh, using agricultural data sets. The whole point of the certificate is to create a population a workforce that is well-versed in both data science, data analytics, and also agricultural systems. Depending on the track that you have, depending on your the background that you have, we have two different tracks. It serves two different types of populations. If you have a a background in agriculture, biology, food life science, genetics, then uh, the, the electives, the two electives after the foundational classes are more related to better understanding data science or data analytics skills. And on the flip side, if your background is statistics or math or engineering, uh, the goal is to give you a better understanding of how biological systems work. And with that, uh, I'd like to thank uh, everyone for your attention. I'm happy to answer any questions and I'm always available via email as well. And I'll stop. Thank you so much. Um, if you, if people would like to raise their hands um, and we can call on you, uh, we'll start though. Fred Gould left a question in the comment while, or in the chat box while you were talking. It says, why was your focus on using nuclear plants for processing instead of other sources of renewable energy? Good question. Um, so nuclear energy is another renewable that has the potential to do, um, to give the hydrogen that we need, uh, aside from, um, from being able to, uh, you know, supply electricity wherever it's placed, uh, increase the electricity uh, energy supply. We could also use the heat provided by a nuclear plant to convert the biomass to fuels. And truly, this is a uh, a concept that came up came about uh, um, in uh, with uh, Lynn Wendt from Idaho National Lab. Charles Forsberg from nuclear uh, engineering and Bruce Dale from Michigan State University. And uh, in fact, we deliver a three-day workshop uh, over the summer and it was absolutely well attended. And, and since then we have continued to work on, uh, on this concept. It's truly a, a semi-new concept 
of, of trying to do integrated uh, um, systems with, with two different renewable energies. Thanks for that. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for that question. Oh, Dylan said she took a course with Shelly. Yeah, Shelly's amazing, as all of my students are. <laughs> okay, uh, Dylan has another question. Dylan, would you like to unmute yourself and ask it yourself? Oh, hello, hi. Yes, so mm -hmm. I was wondering, sorry, I look all messy. Um, how do you, uh, you know, with the needs to use, you know, arable land for food production, you know, the whole, you know, feeding the world as the population increases thing, uh, you know, how do you weigh, um, you know, the needs for food production on that land versus using it for energy, you know, and also on that note, um, you know, how much of this, you know, biomass production is like you're using waste products from, you know, food production? Yeah, Dylan, thank you so much for your question. Um, the goal is to not compete with food or feed. A lot of my analysis uh, are, is done in using agricultural residues from current cash crops uh, or using uh, or developing energy crops in marginal lands that are not currently being used for food, uh, for crops, for of food. So um, the department of the EPA, actually, uh, Environmental Protection Agency has set goals to only limit the use of uh, corn, the grain, corn grain for energy consumption to 15 billion gallons per year. And, and after that, we can only use waste. We can only use, for example, from corn, everything else, not the grain, but uh, the corn cob or the corn stover, the rest of the plant to convert that to biofuels. Uh, again, energy crops such as miscanthus or, or, or switchgrass, they are expected to be grown on lands that are marginal, that are not currently being used on uh, for, for food. Thank you. Good question, Dylan, thank you. Ah, Jason, Jason, do you wanna say your, your question, please? Uh, sure. <clears throat> Thanks for that that presentation. Um, Thank you. I just was thinking. I it's sort of two questions wrapped up in one. One is um, I don't think that you talked explicitly about um, whether biotechnology or genetic engineering could play a role in increasing the efficiency or the yields of biomass production. And so I'm just wondering how that might affect the estimates. And the other question is a, a little bit different. Maybe you kind of caught on from from my uh, comment in the chat. You know, I think I just wonder how you feel as a researcher when when you you know run this model and you look at the ability of biomass to displace fossil fuels and it comes out to about, you know, like the optimistic scenario is about one percent of the energy that we use and need. Um, and so how do you think about that as a researcher in terms of, um, you know, your ability to really make a dent in this problem around um, energy and climate change? No, the, the, those are very good questions. Hang on, impact, 1%. Um, I was taking notes of your uh, questions. Genetics, genetics is absolutely valuable to all these research questions because yes, increasing the yield can definitely increase 
decreased cost for us for delivering biomass from one point to another, uh, increasing yield, and we have more biomass that we could convert. And perhaps with genetics, if we are able to increase that yield, then we can create more of an impact and uh, biomass can be a bigger part of the pie of that uh, um, of that energy uh, energy sources that I was talking about. So yes, absolutely. Genetics is a big part that I've been wanting to uh, get a little a better hang on, but, but I think uh, that's why uh, um, research collaborations of interdisciplinary uh, projects are really, really valuable. Um, and then in terms of impact, I absolutely uh, know what you mean. It's truly, that's, uh, it is discouraging to see that yeah, only corn store and switch or corn store and switch can only really displace 1% of our total energy consumption or one quad. Um, but that's with the given assumptions, perhaps, for example, uh, in our uh, concept for nuclear biofuels, there's a potential to, instead of, uh, to have a double the amount of what we could convert in a regular biofuel scenario. Usually we, we in, in our analysis, we think that uh, we'll bring biomass to a biorefinery and part of that biomass is gonna create the heat to convert the other part of the biomass or about half so that it can become a fuel. So that right there, it, uh, such a concept could double the amount of that we could do. And now given uh, my, my two studies, corn stover and switchgrass, and then woody resources, that which was 1% each, then that would be maybe 4% each, but still uh, there are more uh, bioresources out there that we could continue to uh, advance so that we can better move that needle. And it's all it's 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 also about trying to become more independent about uh, from other nations uh, in, in uh, that deliver that provide us with petroleum uh, resources as well. So it's to mitigate climate impacts, but it also is to uh, reduce the, our independence from uh, petroleum sources. Yeah, Dylan's point was one percent is still a lot, considering how much energy we use. Yes, it's it's uh, a lot of this is whether you're looking at the you know it, it, um, uh, half of the glass full or half of the glass uh, empty. Um, so I. For your question, Jason, I try to stay positive because I truly believe that you know biomass is not going to be the only resource, uh, uh, the only renewable energy that helps us get there. Um, it's truly going to be an integration of all the energies, but biomass is the one that you can convert it into a liquid form of energy, which many others you are not able to unless we develop better batteries. Then you know we're at a pickle there. I see John Klassen has a question. What has to happen to have biomass replace, replace more fossil fuels? To happen, um, what, uh, and, I, and I will piggyback on, on some of the discussions that we had when we created that nuclear biofuels uh, uh, workshop really in, 
a lot of it is stakeholder engagement, trying to understand like a lot of a lot of the um, uh, advances has been done thinking about you know whoever is going to own these biorefiners, whoever is going, whoever are the major stakeholders of uh, fuel production, but truly with uh, we also have to go bottom up and look at uh, what what are the things that will create more uh, adoption from this agricultural uh, workers, from this growers to be able, for example, to accept to collect that corn stover or to accept to transfer some of their fields into, or not fields, or some of their lands into uh, energy crops. There has to be a demand on the other side for them to be able to supply. So uh, it really takes uh, a diverse set of thinkers to be able to strategize um, and really get this uh, work together. I, uh, I recently saw that the Department of Energy, the Department of Transportation and USDA have uh, make, made a pledge, for lack of a better word, to create, uh, to combine forces in it that truly perhaps has been, I've been waiting for them to do that for uh, my whole uh, research career. And so I'm really excited of, you know, the future of bioenergy uh, because I, I know that, you know, uh, the U.S. has the potential to do it. Uh, we just have to unite our our, our thinking minds and um, and better strategize to how, how to actually do it. Can I follow up, Danny? Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, it's a related question. If certainly our stakeholders and, and, and the public has to demand this, um, but from your model, can you estimate um, how much um, other renewable sources can replace um, fossil fuels and, and therefore what is the target for biofuels? Biofuels don't have to provide 100% of our energy needs. What, if, if we're doing, if 1% is possible or 4%, like you said, what is the, what is the actual target? What do we need out of biofuels? Uh, the goal by EPA, which is a very optimistic, uh, ambitious goal, was to displace 30% of our consumptions in the year 2007. Um, uh, believe that translated into 36 billion gallons of equivalent gasoline, uh, of gasoline equivalent. Uh, so that is... It is, um, and then you also ask what other sources aside from agricultural products, municipal solid waste. Um, there is uh, lots of different resources that I, I would love to continue advancing my my uh, research in. Uh, as I was saying, like I, we first started with that herbaceous analysis, which is corn store and switchgrass. Now we're finishing our our paper for uh, using uh, for for using woody resources or forest lands uh, or resources from forest lands and short rotation woody crops. And my next goal is to see the potential, the similar potential for municipal solid waste as well. Does that answer your question, John? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Oh, Dylan.
Dylan has another question. Dylan, do you want to ask, ask it yourself? Yes, sure. Um, yeah, I find this very interesting. I, I've been interested in bioenergy since I did like a, in high school, I did a project on it and I've always been interested. Um, so I was wondering, since we we're kind of going off Jason's question about um, genetic engineering, made me think of, you know, the companies that do, that create, you know, GMOs and have big breeding programs, um, are any of them working on uh, energy crops or on, you know, making food crops more, produce maybe more like residue for biomass or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, absolutely. Uh, for example, at uh, NC State, we have a huge uh, Miss Cantus project uh, funded by DOE, where we're looking at, at you know, how a different uh, varieties of miscanthus uh, to work, I believe two were commercial and there's uh, three that are non-commercial yet. And so yes, we're looking at how can we make more biomass, more of this plant, uh, you know, per a particular acre. So increasing yield, obviously will make a lot of sense. In terms of, for example, corn stover or corn, the major cash crop is the grain. So a lot of genetics, I'm assuming they, they focus around making that grain and not necessarily the corn stover. Um, but perhaps whenever we do have a, a more uh, substantial uh, demand for for corn stover, then then perhaps that would be uh, uh, a potential for advancement as well. Thank you. Thank you, Dylan. Looks like Fred has another question. Fred, do you want to uh, ask it yourself? Yeah, I, I was just wondering, you know, is it, we have a group of students who are interested in getting carbon back into the soil. And the question is, if you're harvesting all that stover and, and using it for production of energy, then you're not putting it back in the soil. So is there a trade off or is it work together? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, those are definitely trade offs uh, when you are able to. Uh, collect, harvest that corn stover and use it for fuels, then you can mitigate the carbon emissions that are otherwise being uh, produced by petroleum uh, uh, in the form of fuel for cars or, or transportation fuels. On the flip side, for example, switchgrass and miscanthus, which are perennial energy crops, uh, you no longer have to, um, you you uh, plant the rhizomes one year and they are able to produce, you know, for several years, I believe it's about 15 or 20 years. And then you don't have to move, uh, rem um, plow that soil and hence you don't remove or, or, or you don't produce erosion to the, uh, to the soil as much. Hence you don't release the carbon emissions uh, that way. So there is definitely uh, trade-offs between collecting that uh, uh, herbaceous biomass, 
depending on what we're talking about, uh, corn stovers, yes. Um, uh, for example, in the Billington study, the assumption was that we are leaving about 10 to 20% of that corn stover in the field. So we're not completely cutting it down all the way to the ground. And that's that's a lot, that's a big assumption that we do have in our models as well when we're accounting for how much corn stover we have in the US. Ooh, uh, I see any more questions. Jennifer, feel free to use the race. Oh, I bet. Jason, from your perspective, what are the most significant policy levers that would increase biomass energy production? Is it mostly about the ultimate price of energy? It was interesting that your graph of biomass energy production show very different slope for different sources of biomass. I can also ask out, oh, <laughs> too late, I guess. Thank you, Jason, for your question. Um, let me start with the first one, the policy. Uh, absolutely. Um, it took the petroleum industry really a lot of effort uh, in about, a hundred years to get to where they were to get to be uh, uh, highly competitive and commercial. Um, I I keep meaning to add one of the um, the propaganda that you used to, to to my slides. One of the propaganda that they used to use for for petroleum use, where they were just encouraging all everybody to use uh, petroleum based products. Um, you know, and that was like one strategy that they wanted to use so that to increase that, uh, uh, the demand for petroleum-based uh, petroleum products. In the terms of policy, I, I, I truly think that yes, we will have to have a, uh, a way of incentivizing uh, agriculture workers or the agriculture community to uh, mitigate carbon emissions or, or to sequester carbon um, in, uh, to, for really, for really us to move a needle in uh, in mitigating climate change, for sure. Um, and then it is is it about about the price? It is always about the price. <laughs> no, it is about the price, but it's also about finding ways to uh, to better incorporate in the models in this uh, optimization models. How does it affect uh, society to have the opportunity cost of, or, or estimate the opportunity cost of not having uh, biofuels of continuing to uh, um, uh, um, create this many carbon emissions and uh, not doing anything about it. So uh, I should, I'm, I'm really glad that a lot of uh, the proposals out there now are always asking for a social scientist because we truly have to work like that. We have to combine our efforts and diversify in term, in our projects so that we can truly answer the, the big challenges of, of that we are facing today. Um, yeah, so price, it, it is one way to make sure that we are all speaking the same language. That's how I see it. We all know uh, the value of the dollar. Okay, an economist might say something different, but, uh, uh, you know, quantifying the cost, the social cost is truly what will flip the coin, I think, in a lot of our, our um, uh, models and results. 
So Jason, you want in? <laughs> I know your background is in social science. <laughs> well, just a, this is sort of a specific question, but the graph that you showed um, for the different biomass, uh, you, you know, um, feedstocks, Mm -hmm. the, the slope, for example, of miscanthus was really steep. So when the price went up, the delivery of that went way up. But mm -hmm. a couple of the other sources of biomass didn't seem to change that much with an increase in price. And so I'm just curious about that. Um, or maybe I misread that graph, but I'd, I'd love your comments on that. No, yeah, you're right. Uh, that is mainly because um, miscanthus and, and switchgrass, they both are you know, fully energy crops. So all the, all the, um, the biomass it's for, for energy. Uh, and those, those graphs were created for, based on results by an econometric model that has assumptions to stop the, to have a stopping point for, for example, corn storage, which is why perhaps that you, you didn't see it as steep. Uh, we can, we only have so many, uh, so many fields of corn and we can only uh, collect or harvest corn stover from uh, um, from those fields at say 10% or 20%. So that's why those uh, lines were a lot less steep than miscanthus and, and uh, switchgrass, for example. Uh, miscanthus and switchgrass, again, they, they require or they're inherently in the, in the econometric model um, they are perennial energy crops that are adopted by by landowners that all of a sudden now are, for example, uh, given that there is such a big supply or such a big farm gate price offered, then they they just they make take the decision to use that land for energy crops. But it, that's a really good point, Jason. Yeah, uh, that's that's inherent in a, in that uh, econometric model. Thank you for your question. I see Ramon raised her hand, but Jennifer right. has had, sorry, Jennifer has also had her hand up for a while. Uh, Ramon can go first. Okay, thank you. Um, <clears throat> I'm just wondering about your opinion on the role of uh, bioenergy crops in really affecting our ability to diversify our agricultural landscape and to maintain biological diversity or biodiversity in those landscapes. So one of the things that, uh, and for full disclosure, I, I do research on bioenergy crops too. Uh, but one of our concerns is that we're perpetuating a model that tends to homogenize the landscape and, and push growers away from diversifying the system, which, which has a lot of consequences on the, the on, on biodiversity and crops like miscanthus or or switchgrass that have been proposed to be grown on what quote unquote people call marginal land, which are currently now a few islands for for biodiversity, might have a, a serious negative consequence. So I'm just wondering about what your your opinion is about that. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I agree. Uh, we are continuously monocropping. Uh, I think that was uh, a word thrown out by you, baby. Um, I true. I also do believe about uh, that. Perhaps one of the answers to uh, really understand these questions is one: to either 
better understand how double crops work. There's other energy crops that are not perennial, uh, so they're on, on an annual basis um, that we could also, uh, you know, in, in include in our analysis that we we should we have been meaning to also include in our analysis. Um, relay cropping could also be another um, option for uh, trying to diversify our crops. I, I, I understand where you're coming from. We do need to, we do worry about having, uh, you know, also maintaining our ecosystems. So that's definitely a good point. I, I agree with that uh, in the, in, in, I would love to continue researching and and see follow up with uh with you to see uh if we can potentially you know work on that together. Then yeah, I'll be happy to. Thank you so much. Great, thank you. Jennifer, go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Um a little while ago you mentioned the hundred year history of the petroleum industry. And I was wondering if there are any pitfalls or My is is it my internet or is it hers? Jen seems frozen. Oh yes, but I think I'm back. Am I back? You're back. I think Jen is frozen. So we both froze at the same time. I think I'm back. The who says? You're back. There's a question in the chat or a comment in the chat you might address. Okay, I did not listen. Sorry, I missed Jennifer's uh, question. So Jennifer, would you mind, uh, do you want to go back and say it? Okay, if you can hear me. If not, you can move on. Um, You were talking about the 100-year history of the petroleum industry, and I was just wondering if there are any pitfalls or... um, things they did right that you could take into your you know the development of biofuels and its implementation good question (laughs) i don't know about using um uh the advertising um i forget what it's called the advertisement that i was talking about there's definitely things that we have to learn from the uh the petroleum industry and and in fact most likely whoever is going to develop this industry the biofuels industry on the conversion side it is most likely going to be in my perspective uh you know big companies like big petroleum companies i'm not even going to mention them uh they're already investing in in figuring out uh you know how do we how do we move that needle um so you know again i think it for anything to happen, it has to be a diverse set of uh, researchers and industry partners that have, including history, have knowledge, including history of you know what worked before and what 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 could work for the biofuels industry. Thank you. I see uh, another question in the chat. Zachary, uh, I think it was the. You got, you know, I didn't catch it. There was a reference to the econometric model. Oh, the econometric model is the, it's policies uh, developed by 
well, now led by Chad Halwinkle in uh, the University of Tennessee. Um, they run it at Oak Ridge National Lab uh, and was the, the model that um, developed those results into how much biomass do we have in the US um, available. Okay, let me know if you have a follow-up question. I can I can lead you exactly to the people that I, I work with them a lot. So I can lead you with uh I can introduce you if you if you are interested. Yeah, uh Gossam Shabazi. So I was just commenting that uh uh you know as uh taking part of the biomass and incorporating and converting into uh, biochar and incorporating the soil. We will be able to uh, increase the productivity of that soil, whether we are using it to grow grow more biomass or to grow food for uh, in developing countries. They, we still need to grow a lot more food, and also uh, by doing this, we are you know taking some of that carbon uh, uh, away from the atmosphere. So we are helping to uh, lower the uh, the uh, climate change. Uh, you know uh, the uh, the, the danger of the climate change. Uh, there's also uh, uh, private companies who have developed a lot of uh, genetically modified trees, fast growing trees, trees that uh, you know can survive better in uh, drought. So uh, these are trees that uh, you have to only uh, they don't produce they don't produce seed. So uh, they don't become a uh, nuisance and uh, you, you have to only uh, take the uh, shoots and then root them and then uh, multiply them or, or uh, you know, grow them again. So uh, these are really uh, very good options for the genetically modified trees that are fast growing and survive better. Thank you. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I did. I, I do always forget about the, the byproducts uh, of uh, converting biomass to biofuels. Yes, like biochar, like you're saying. Uh, um, that's another way that we can absolutely increase the production of biofuels by creating that, those additional byproducts that byproducts that can increase the profit of a biorefinery. And uh, that's a great, great point for uh, lowering the CO2 emissions as well, or, or putting back, putting it back to the, the soil, like you're saying. Thank you. Okay, I think we have time for just about one more question. If there are any last takers, Fred, did you want to ask your question? Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't want to take up anybody else's time, but if there's an extra spot. So if you were the energy czar and uh, you were to deal with this whole issue as, of corn as a biofuel crop, I mean, what would you do? Would you continue to keep the policies or how would you change them? Or would you just say, no, this is a bad idea? To use corn grain or corn, including What's corn being grain. done now, right? 10% ethanol coming from corn. Yeah. Would you continue that or what would you do? I think, I mean, that's the only biomass that we have uh, as, as a biofuel right now, like you're saying. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that would stop it unless... Um, you know, there are other parameters that are not considering. Ultimately, I would stop it only if my I have a better understanding that, you know, it affects negatively to the growers. 
that would be my only concern. I don't, as I, I, I know that, you know, um, corn prices have fluctuated and they can, they're all, have always fluctuated. Uh, and that's a, you know, and for the growers, that's an, an another available way or available uh, form of selling that corn that they have. Uh, so no, I would not, I would not stop that. What I would do is try to work on uh, other ways to diversify the biofield that we do have, like corn stover, uh, and trying to increase that profit of growers uh, um, and make sure. I mean, there's a lot of uh, policies that I think need to be taken in place, but also better understanding of these data-driven decisions based on you know our big climate change uh, um, evidence <laughs> and and, uh, and you know um, so if I were to have the power, research would be where um, I would focus my. Um, my efforts, research and how to how to increase that and get the right people in place to make those decisions, including uh, growers that are, you know, that are directly affected. Yeah, thank you, because, you know, I, I do hear different kinds of opinions about what we should do. It's interesting to hear yours. That's pretty informed. Thank you. Thank you, Fred. Okay, I think we're out of time. There's just one comment from Jim Holland, and he just said 26% of corn grain last year went to make fuel ethanol. Um, so, wow, that, that's a lot higher than I realized. So that's that's interesting. Thank you. Um, well, if everyone could help me uh, thank Dr. Jones for a great uh, talk and seminar today. And uh, we will see everyone here next week. And again, just... Uh, I just want to remind everyone we're switching to full virtual because of all of the technical um, issues we were having. Uh, and I think hopefully everyone agrees that uh, the, the audio was better this week. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So take care and we'll see you next week. Thank you guys. Thank you to everyone. Thank you.